You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning's uh, scripture comes from Matthew 7. We're looking at Matthew 7, verses 15 through 29. It says this. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a deceased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of our Lord. Pray with me. Father, I ask that this morning as we hear your word, and as we look into Matthew 7, as we close out the Sermon on the Mount, that we would see um, your words, that we would see your authority in the text, that we would see your authority translate from the text and into our lives, and that you would make us people who hear your words and who follow them. Would we be doers of good, not for good's sake, but to glorify you because of all your goodness to us, namely through your cross, through your resurrection? So as we come, would would you uh, anoint your words through Casey this morning? Would he preach um, you clearly? Would we hear you clearly? And would we submit to you as Lord Jesus? We also ask that in this building that um, your Holy Spirit would not depart uh, at 1 p.m. when we close up the doors. We ask that Spirit, you would linger throughout the week, that you would um, touch students, you would touch teachers and faculty, staff. That there would be, um, when thinking even just about the season, that there would be a peace that is felt, that's experienced. Lord, that you would Um, draw about individuals in this building um, who would be ambassadors of your peace, that um, your goodness might be proclaimed uh, in these halls. And we ask that that your word would even go beyond these halls into our city. 
So captivate us this morning, Holy Spirit. Um, tie us in, knit our hearts more closely to your heart, Father, to love Jesus like you love him. It's in his name, amen. Good morning and Merry Christmas. Oh, say that back. Come on. Merry Christmas. I know it's, I know it's early. I actually had this experience in Walmart where uh, I ran into one of you, um, and, uh, and I've, I've, I've met you a couple times, um, but then I was walking away. I wanted to say something, and I said Merry Christmas, and I was like, gosh, man, it's too early for that, uh, but <clears throat> Merry Christmas. Uh, I want to draw your attention just to two areas right as we get started. And so the first place I want to draw your attention is to verse 24. And so as we get into this, these last words of the first teaching block of Matthew, and what we have is we have the narrative of the Christmas story that we started way back in like August. Um, and it, it, it's building and people are encountering Jesus and they're making a decision about who Jesus is and is he worthy of following or should he be rejected? Is what he's, what he's saying and what he's preaching, how he came into the world, are those things something to follow or are those something to reject? So then we get to the famous teaching of, of the Sermon on the Mount and we come to the close of the Sermon on the Mount and we have this in verse 24 where it says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And, and so there's this hearing and there's this doing. And if we're actually gonna spread that even more, there's this hearing about the kingdom of God and the person of Jesus and making a decision that is gonna determine your ultimate reality forever and ever. And that decision, if you see Jesus as who he says he is, it changes something on the inside of you. So hearing, interchange, believing, and then it has this walking out of this doing. It changes you from the inside out. An interchange inside of you starts to work itself out. But sometimes the process of that is like you come and you start to engage with the people of God. You start to see something different in their life. You start to want to something, like you want what they have. And you step in and you start doing, but there still has to be a time that the message of the gospel, that the Christmas message that God entered in to do what you could never do, God entered in. Like that message has to take hold and there has to be an interchange. And this text is terrifying. It's terrifying. I mean, it's terrifying, like right in this, like in verse 24, right around here, we seem to have two people standing before God and saying, did we not do all these things? And he says, I don't even know you like a missing of the inner change. Um, my uh, eldest, um, she says every time I, I tell a story or money, but that's not true. Um, I pay all her bills. Um, but she was at, at chapel at school and uh, the, the chapel speaker was sharing and said something about, you know, you know, who's the biggest Scrooge that you know? And she raised her hand and stood up and said, my dad is the biggest Scrooge that I know. And then it was like, why? And it's why, because I don't put, we don't put up Christmas lights. And uh, I'm like, obviously, look at this tree, guys. We take Christmas really serious around here, you know? <laughs> But I'm like, no, man, Christmas, it's in my heart, you know? It's in my heart. Saving faith 
comes from the work of the Holy Spirit inside of your life that steps in and will eventually work its way out. And there's a great danger that we might put on all the things of the faith and do it for other idolatries, do it for other approvals, do it for other ambitions and other goals and miss the gospel altogether. And all along, we're working to make God owe us something and not for what we looked at last week, the great pearl of who Jesus is. So let me pray for us as we get started. Um, Lord, I, gosh, I just pray as we look at this, Lord, that we wouldn't, um, gosh, Lord, it's not my goal to scare. It's not my goal to like bring doubt and to uh, cause people to wrestle with unnecessary fear, but the text does make us wrestle with fear. And so, Lord, I pray that it'd be appropriate. I pray that it wouldn't be uh, believers in the room that still see sin that they struggle with because, man, I'm a believer in the room and I still have sin that I struggle with. And so that's not evidence of no faith. The very fact that you struggle and that you have a love and heart for Jesus and that you're constantly rebuking stuff, Lord, that is evidence of faith. And so, Lord, I pray that this struggle wouldn't cause us doubt. But, Lord, I pray if your Holy Spirit brings in doubt that we would wrestle with it and to be God for the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to move around just a little bit. And so look at the beginning of, of Matthew 5, because I want to make sure that we start on the foundation of where we started. And so Matthew 5 starts with the Beatitudes, and it, it's a famous part uh, of this sermon where we see all these different things. But it starts with this. That is what makes a Christian. What makes a Christian is not all the things that we follow through as we talk about different ethical things, which are very, very important. That is not what makes a Christian. What makes a Christian we find in the first few verses where we see an interchange happening. And so what makes a Christian is something that starts on the inside and it starts to work itself out. Something has to happen inside of you. And you might say, what does that look like? And it looks like this. Like it looks, if you see like, like verse three, it looks like being poor in spirit, a realization that you can't save yourself. That no matter what you reach in and what you do and how much you work, there's not enough inside of you to fix your sin problem. It's too deep for you to reach. And then it works out in verse four, you start to see a sadness over persisting sin. The things that you used to do that felt like just kind of wrong or you knew they weren't right, now it just brings a mournfulness. Blessed are those who mourn. And then it grows into like a verse five and six, like a growing desire to come under Jesus and his direction. And we see these words like meekness and hungering for righteousness. And there's a growing thing inside of you that you're not necessarily like just propping up with will of like, that's what good people do, gosh darn it, just do it. Like there's something growing inside of you. And sometimes it's small and sometimes it's, big, but there's something growing inside of you, a hunger and a thirsting for righteousness. Or verse seven, forgiveness starts to grow in your heart. You become more merciful and less vindictive. Or verse eight and nine, like your heart starts to want to make peace with those around you and you become less duplicit. Or verse 10 and 11, suddenly you can face adversity and suffering and disappointment and hurt. And by all means it hurts and it shakes the branches of your life, but there's a new stability inside of your soul that it doesn't wreck you. 
an inner strength that starts to grow. And then verses 13 through 16, suddenly you realize the Holy Spirit of God, the person of Jesus has stepped inside of your life and is transforming what the scriptures are gonna say, transforming you from death to light or from darkness to light. And then we get this great narrative. It's making you light that the Holy Spirit has stepped in to make you different from the inside out. And we see this story unfolding again that in Genesis one, God made the light and he separated from the darkness. In Genesis three, that darkness entered into our souls and it filled us with insecurity, doubt, and defense. It filled us with unbelief about who God is, unbelief about the goodness of intentions toward us, and that darkness made us want to resist God and his ways. But then there's Christmas. But there's Christmas that God stepped in. And so if you even just turn one page over, we see this great uh, message in Matthew 4, verse 16. And it says this, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death on them, light has been dawned. And the light of heaven entered in to be light for us. But more than that, Jesus came to turn the darkness into light. And that's why John when he's writing his first epistle in 1 John chapter 1, verse seven, he says, if we walk with Jesus in the light, the light will expose the darkness, but it's even better than that. It's not just that it exposes it so it can expel it. We get like the apostle Paul in Ephesians five, he says, anything exposed to the light of Christ, anything the light of Christ touches, it becomes light itself. And so the picture of a believer of the great sufferings and wrongdoings that you might have or the great difficulties, as God opens that up and steps into it, it becomes the great tools for you to minister in a world. And that is the process of what we see of Jesus then taking his believers, incomplete believers, people who, who still mess up, taking them and setting them on stands like a, a city on a hill. That's what we see in Matthew 5, verse 14 through 16, displaying what he's done in them, even though they're not done yet. Displaying what he's done in them, letting them shine out like a light in a dark night so that this broken and depraved generation, those are the words of the New Testament, might reach out and find the light. And so we might say, well, how do we sh shine? And it'd be changing our ways to look like what we find on the inside. And that's where we begin in Matthew 5, starting in verse 17, all the way through the end, through 12, where we start to work on the sanctification process. Like, what does that change look like from the inside out? It starts to change. So just look at the paragraph headings. And so we see this, like, we're no longer ruled by anger, or just the next paragraph, like our sex and marriages are different. Or we keep our promises, we refuse to retaliate. We love and we forgive our enemies because we are loved enemies by God. We give generously and we live out of spiritual devotion so that God sees it and smiles. We refuse to let anxiousness rule our lives. We fight judgmental spirits. Why we still make good judgments and saying this is wrong and this is right. But all of those things come out of this bedrock of faith, of hearing a message about Jesus, making a decision about who Jesus is, and inner light growing in our souls and coming out in our doings. Like this is our discipleship. 
were justified, made right before God in Matthew 5, 1 through 16. And then the sanctification process, our personal change process, that the Holy Spirit himself starts to look at things in your life and say, hey, this doesn't belong, it's gotta go. It starts to push these things out. And in the process of those things being pushed out, God puts you on display, and that seems risky to me. You're you're not done yet. You still mess up. There's still darkness being expelled, and he puts you on display like a city on a hill. Like, it seems crazy to me. And so then the world looks at us, and they're like, oh, man, a bunch of hypocrites. They still mess up. And our message has never been that we earn it. Our message has been that God came in, and he's expelling these things out. And so if you walk in humility, when people say, oh, it's hypocritical, you still mess up, you're like, I know. I know I still mess up. And so the process of change is pushing out. God puts his incomplete people on display to point, point to his perfection that has come. Your change project, you living like this doesn't save you, but it points a dark world to the changing light of Jesus. And so we start to see the ethics of the kingdom come out. And he says, do this, be like this, live like this, love your enemies, forgive. And then we get to a scary warning. Jesus' sermon, the, the famous sermon on the mount, ends with this terrifying warning. where, Where Jesus finishes teaching and then he points us to a choice and he says, choose. And so we're gonna look at these, these four scenes under three headings. And so first we're gonna look at two roads, or it might say gates, but it's talking about roads, gate, then a road. So we're gonna look at two roads. And it's gonna tell us that salvation begins with a turning off one road to get on the other road. And then we're gonna look at two trees, two different people, and it's gonna say salvation does something on the inside and then it comes out. The inside DNA de- de- depicts the fruit. And then we're gonna look at two churchgoers, and it's pictured in two houses. And so let, let, me, let me pray for us again, and then let's get started. And it's gonna go, it's gonna go fairly quick. I mean, I know I say that a lot, but fairly quick. Um, Father, Lord, I pray that even just one of these pictures would haunt us, and we would ask about a turning in our life, has there been change? Or we'd ask about the fruit of our life, and it'd point inside, and we would ask, what is the DNA of my soul? Or we'd look at the building of our lives and we would ask, what is the foundation of my doings? And Jesus, we just ask that you would bring light. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Which you never know if you're gonna say amen or if you're gonna say amen, it's hard. First point, two roads. Salvation requires a turning. Look at verse 13, it says, enter by the narrow gate, For the gate is wide and the way, or some translations are gonna say the road or the path, the way is easy that leads to destruction and and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way or the road is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. And so let's look quickly just what this is saying. So like it's saying several things, but first it's saying that there's two roads. There's two directions, there's two ways. Like there's not just like one option and there's not like thousands of options. It says there's two options and it describes them. Like one of those, there's a wide road 
And, and on that wide road, you try to earn right standing before God and others. Like that wide road has an ethic and its doings. And like you get what you do. If you work hard, then you might get rewarded. If you don't work hard and you're lazy, people will know it and it will come out. If you live a certain way, people might respect you. If you don't live that way, they won't respect you. It has a lot of doings on that road. And so, like, work hard and impress God, and then he'll save you and he'll owe you. Or it might be work hard and others will be impressed, and that will fix you. You'll be promoted, rewarded, respected, and that might save you. Or sometimes that, that, that wide road, it's kind of like, man, you do you. Whatever seems right to you, trust your heart. It's kind of like the care bear moment. Care bear, mo- care bear moment. Um, it's hard to say, fast. But trust your heart, your truth is truth, you be you, you do you. The wide, the wide road tells us that our better effort and what seems right to us is the way to abundant, authentic life. If it feels right or it feels good or it seems right, then do that. That's what the wide road feels like. And what we find as this unpacks, if the road depicts everything that follows is we find that this this road is full of rule breakers and rule followers. This road is full of religious people and non-religious people. It has drunks and it has teetotalers. Like it is easy and natural to be on this road. Everyone on this road is trying to fix themselves somehow trying to prove themselves somehow, trying to look at others and say, man, I'm further down the road, I'm better because I've done this or I haven't done that. And it says this road is wide. But then it describes there's a narrow road. And on the narrow road, like what what we come to learn through the Sermon on the Mount is it starts with you trust Jesus and trusting Jesus is what makes you right before God. It's not earning it how far you get down the road. You trust Jesus at the very beginning of the road. It says that this road is hard, that it cuts against us. It goes against our thoughts. Uh, We have to earn it or it goes against our lust for control and mastery over things. It's hard because it demands that you surrender control like look at what it says it says the entrance or the gate to this road is narrow to get in you have to squeeze through like it doesn't tell you exactly what it's going to be like on the other side but it looks super narrow and you're going to have to squeeze through have you ever watched like uh discovery channels where people they, they they climb in caves and they get to a moment where they're half underwater and they've got this like little opening where they have to hold their breath to squeeze through and they seem to know there's air on the other side and room but they squeeze through it and the whole time you are panicking because you might have just a little bit of claustrophobic and you know that plate tectonics move and they might be stuck forever The narrow gate, it demands the unpacking of your life. To even get on that road, there has to be a moment where Jesus looks at you and he demands something of you and it's called repentance. There's a turning. And so when the rich young ruler came to Jesus, Jesus looked at him, saw obedience. It says Jesus loved him and he says, your riches are keeping you from the kingdom of God. Will you give them to me? And he turned away. Or or we look at the disciples. I mean, think about Matthew. He walked away from a lucrative career. Jesus said, follow me. Or we can think about others who walked away from relationships or identities or status. Like Jesus, at this moment of coming off the big road, the wide road to the narrow road, 
there's a place where he says, I have to unpack your life. Will you give it to me? To get on the narrow road, there's a repentance or a turning. Jesus will ask you to hand him the thing that you are trusting in to define you before others or before him. Meaning you have to make a decision to turn off deciding what seems right to you. You know, the second thing I just say about this road is this road has different destinations. See, there's not many roads that lead to the same destination. There are two roads that lead to different destination. One, it says, leads to life, and the other, it says, it leads to, verse 13, destruction. And so put it in even New Testament language, you can say, man, one leads to abundant life with God in heaven, and the other leads to forever destruction in hell away from God. And like I know right now, like you, you say hell, you're like, man, I can't believe he even said it. I can't believe. Like, do they actually believe that kind of thing? That there, there's like a hell? Like how silly or how archaic? Or, or you might think, man, that is so arrogant that there's only one way to get to God. Like, don't you know that there's many roads going up the mountain and we're all on our same path and as long as you're like a good, decent person, you're gonna get there. How arrogant and exclusive is that statement? And I would just say, hey, I'm not making that statement. Jesus is making that statement. Jesus is saying that there is a narrow road with a narrow gate and I'm gonna have to unpack your life and that process of unpacking is you holding probably the thing that is dearest to you that has created your identity up to him and he may take it or he may not but he promises he will take your sin away. And so this is making an absolute claim statement. There is one way to God but just consider like you saying that statement is wrong is also a faith claim of an absolute statement that you're standing on that that can't possibly be right. See, there's two roads. In the Bible, when it talks about original sin, that we were in darkness, but Matthew 4, Jesus entered in to bring light. Like the picture is we all start on that broad road that leads to death, to get off that road that leads to death, we have to make a decision and there has to be a turning. Two roads, salvation requires a turning. And then verse 24, you've heard, have you done? Number two, two trees. Two trees, salvation requires inside out change. And this really kind of depicts everything else that follows. And so we're gonna look at this, but the inside will eventually be exposed to the outside. So look at verse 15. It says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered by thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, I'm not gonna spend a whole lot of time here, 
But this is talking first about false teachers and false teachers have always been a problem. They are currently a problem and they will continue to be a problem. In the Old Testament, they called them false prophets. They would say, man, God told me to tell you this, but God hadn't told them to tell us that. And then there'd be this, you know, exposing them and always be this big battle. And so then the right prophets would get up and they would say, listen, man, God hasn't said that. This is what God has said. And typically the true prophets had bad news that they didn't really want to give. And the, the, the false prophets had this really happy news that just says, man, just hug yourself. It'll be all right. And so typically that's how it went. But then there was a difficulty of false teachers and true teachers. And, but it, it, in the New Testament, we see the, the same thing. All the epistles are talking about this is the truth, return to the truth, return to the gospel, build a life out of the gospel. This is what's right. If people are telling you something different, they are false teachers. All of the epistles, they're all talking about that. And so this is saying that the outer fruit of someone's life can give insight eventually to the true inner being of what's going on. Whatever's on the outside will eventually come evident, um, or whatever's on the inside will eventually become evident on the outside. Like this is a warning. You can fake it for a while, but the DNA of your soul will eventually show itself and bear fruit that comes alongside. And so he gives this warning. He says, listen, like you can try to produce fruit that looks a certain way, but whatever's been done on the inside will eventually be shown on the outside. And it's kind of this begging for this moment. Pray to God that it would be exposed in this life because the next story is even scarier. So two roads, salvation requires a turning. Two trees, salvation requires inside out change. And then two churchgoers or two hearers. Salvation requires being before doing. Yeah, this is scary. When, when I was in uh, the fraternity, uh, my roommate, he uh, decided that he loved to scare people and, uh, and it affected the whole house. Like we, we all decided that was cool and we wanted to scare people because it'd be kind of exciting. Like, you know, you get a little like, huh, you know, and you're like, oh man, my heart. Oh, that was so fun. We can hug it out now. You know, th- there's a kind of scare that, there's a kind of scare that's kind of fun. Or you watch a scary movie and the whole time you're like, why are we watching this? This is terrifying. <laughs> Kinsey, when we were dating, she took me on a, a scary movie date and we watched uh, The Ring, uh, which proves that if you paint someone gray and they crawl out of a TV, it is terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. And then we went to this restaurant, it was called The Haunted House. There's like a murder there, unsolved, and so you eat there. Um, and so we went there, but you know, Kinsey doesn't really like scary movies, but she did it for me because she, she, she loved me. Um, and so I appreciated it. We walked out of the movie and she was like, that wasn't even that scary. I was like, I, I almost wet my pants. It's terrifying. But you know, there's a scary that you kind of like, it's kind of fun. And then there's like a, a scary, scary. Like a prognosis that, that you can't stand against. Like, like a really scary, like something's going inside of me that I can't stop. I can't grab it. I can't touch it. I need help from outside of me. Like there's that kind of scary. Or something's going on in someone's life and you can't help them. The addictions rage on. They turn away and go back. They're still enslaved. And so this is a scary moment that he says in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so it says, listen, like not everyone who necessarily looks and says, man, I did all these things, who says, Lord, Lord, is gonna enter, but there's a will that has to happen that you have to join with Jesus, come in his yoke, walk with him in the will of God. Something has to happen on a path. And it goes on, verse 22, it says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, above Jesus said that we would know if the leaders or teachers are Christians by what they do, but then he gives this deeper warning and he says, there is even a doing that will cover up a not being that can confuse you and it means you're not a Christian. And so let's just look at what it says. First, verse 21, it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord. And so that that word Lord, it's kurios, which is used almost exclusively for Jesus in the New Testament. And it means more than just sir or something. Matter of fact, the first century Christians, when Caesar came out, he came out with Kaiser Kurios, which means this, Caesar is Lord. And the Christians wouldn't say it because they said Caesar is not Lord, only Jesus is Lord. And so this is saying there's good doctrine. You can know good doctrine, but good doctrine can't save you. It's absolutely important. You need good doctrine. We all have holes in our doctrine. We need to know what we believe, but it doesn't save you. It doesn't create the saving being that you need. And so it is possible to have good doctrine and to miss the gospel. And then to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. But, but then it goes on, it says, it's gonna say this, being spiritually moved can't save you, it's important. Like, it's important, you're an embodied soul, the inner workings of you are not arbitrary. Like, your doing can never create the saving being that you need. And so verse 21 again, it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And so like the doubling of that is showing like a spiritually engagement, like an emotional engagement. And so just a couple of examples, you could look in Luke 10. And in Luke 10, you would see Jesus, uh, Mary and Martha, and you might remember the story. You know, Jesus is teaching and Mary is at his feet listening and Martha is preparing because there's 12 disciples and that's a lot of people to feed. And so she is cleaning and preparing and she comes to Jesus and she says, listen, can you tell my bum sister to get off her little tushy and help me with the chores? And Jesus says this, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. See, in the Semitic language, like when you double up, also our language, like when you double up, it shows emotions. He says, Martha, Martha, I love you, but you are wrong. She is right. Just be with me. Or, you know, we see it in 2 Samuel when Absalom, David's son, is trying to overthrow him and take over the kingdom. And to secure the kingdom, Absalom is killed. And when David finds out that his son who tried to kill him, tried to overthrow him, was murdered, he said this, oh, my son Absalom, 
Oh, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, my son. Like the repeating of the word is talking about some sort of emotional engagement. They did it and we do it. But the people standing for Jesus, they say, Lord, Lord. We had these emotional experiences. We had the Jesus goosebumps. Like we had like that worship clinch you get in where you're like, ah, you know, Muay Thai. I mean, we had those moments. And Jesus says, but that wasn't coming out of your being. Depart. I never knew you. Or it says like you can be active in ministry and that can't save you. Like, it's important. Like, right before, uh, you know, getting to this part of the sermon, I had to use the bathroom really fast. And I heard, like, like 20 kids back there screaming their heads off. And I was like, oh, man, we need kid workers. It's fun. You should go do it. You should sign up. <laughs> like, it's important. Like, serving, we, we, we need it. Like, like it's, it's important. Like, someone has to watch the kids. I mean, someone has to change the diapers. Well, something had to come through the window. Something had to break this stereo. I don't know why the carpet's wet, Todd. I don't know, Margo. Christmas story. And so, like, it has to be done. They're serving, and like, look, but your doings can never create the saving being that we have with the gospel. And so, like, look at verse 22. Like, look at what it says. It says, on that day, many will save to me. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Do. And cast out demons in your name? Do, do. And do many mighty works in your name. Do, do, do. Like these are big next level do's. Like they're not chump rolls. Like this is not just being good in doctrine, not just being emotionally engaged. This is being active in ministry. But verse 23 follows that. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That scares me. Like, like that scares me. Like you can have right doctrine. You can teach right doctrine. You can preach theological moving sermons and still be on the broad road that leads to destruction. Like putting on good doctrine can't save you. Or it says you can be emotionally engaged and moved. You can be moved in worship service. You can lead emotionally engaged and theological stout worship and still be on the broad road. Feeling moved doesn't get you off the broad road. Or you can do things, big things, and you can still be on the broad road that leads to destruction. Consider Judas. In Jesus' ministry, he sent out the 12 two by two and they came back and they said, man, we cast out demons, we healed the sick, we preached and people responded. And like all of those things happened in those pairs. It's not like, man, we all did it, but Judas, man, he got nothing done. I mean, everyone was kind of surprised by Judas because there was an inner working in him that didn't start with a relationship with Jesus, a putting on. So it's scary. And then there's more description to help us. See, the picture is two different people standing before Jesus. And in essence, they look a lot alike. They both went to church. They both were active in the doing ministries. They both read the Bible and could answer the Sunday school questions. Um, But only one was known by Jesus. Only one gets in. And in allegorical terms, the houses that they built, the lives that they built looked the same. And so look at verse 24. 
Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And so the house is built, it faces a coming storm and it stands because of a foundation it was built upon. But then verse 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. The house is also built. For all intent purposes, it looks just like the other house. It could have the same doctrine and the same passionate and engaging worship and the same faithful service. But the same storm hit it and it falls because it was on the wrong foundation. It was built upon the sand, not the rock. And so the question is, how do I know that I'm on the rock and not on the sand? How do I know that the house that I'm building, because it does take effort, it does take study, it does take taking time aside and being moved by the scriptures and reading them. And, you know, I get manipulated into coming here and doing setup. And, you know, how do I know? How do I know that I'm not building on a lot of little rocks that shift and move and I'm building on just one rock, a love for Christ and what he's done because he's the pearl of heaven that came down and I see his worth. So I just want to point in three directions and then I'm going to close this in prayer. The first is, is, is looking back. Do you see Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the only answer for our sins? Matthew 1 through 2 was so careful to show how the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. Like, do you remember what the angel told Joseph when he found out Mary was pregnant and he was going to divorce her quietly? He said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, which means God saved, for he will save his people from their sins. And how did Jesus start his ministry? With a summary statement. In Matthew 4, 17, he says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He, he started teaching, hey, we're all on this wide road and there has to be a moment that there's a turning in our life that we look at what we have. Like it's easy, this seems right to me. I just kind of work it in, but there has to be a moment that I see the narrow road and there's an unpacking of my life that I hold those things open-handed, even the good things open-handed. And I say, Jesus, you have more value than those. If you take them and keep them, they're yours. And so there's, there's a looking back, but there's also a looking forward. He, here in, well, it's gonna be a while because we're gonna take a break and then we're gonna jump back into Matthew. Uh, but when we get to Matthew 16, we're gonna hear these incredible words that Jesus is the rock that can withstand the storm of hell. And so it's gonna say this in Matthew 16, verse 15, it's gonna say, he Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the one who has come to save us from our sins. You are the promised Messiah, the one that we have the words of life in, that we put our hope in. And then it says, and Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, 
for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter. I rename you as Peter. You're the one that we look to. And it says that on this rock, and I don't think it's looking at Peter saying you're the rock. On this rock, this rock equals Jesus Christ is the living God who came in to do something with our sin. On this statement, on this thing that turns me off the broad road into the narrow road, upon this I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Broad road. A turning an unpacking, and then two trees, a change from the inside out that starts to come out over time, which leads us to you can also look in, and this is where we started, looking in, does your life look like in a growing degree, like a Matthew 5, verses 1 through 11, are you more and more sure Are you more and more seeing? Is it more and more evident that verse three of Matthew five, I can't save myself, I'm poor in spirit. So therefore there's a sadness and a persisting persisting brokenness over my sin in and around me. So there's a mourning of my soul, but there's also a growing desire to come under Jesus and his direction in verses five and six. There's a meekness and a hunger for righteousness. I never had that before. Or verse seven, there's a forgiveness that starts to grow in my heart and my life and I'm becoming more merciful and less vindictive. Or verses eight and nine, like your heart starts to want to make peace even when you've been hurt. It's less and less duplicitive. You're not as defensive as you used to be, or verse 10 through 12, like suddenly you can face adversity, suffering, disappointment with more guidance and more steadiness. Like those hurts still hurt you, but they don't seem to destroy you. Verses 13 through 16, this is the process that comes in and starts to make your soul light instead of darkness. The Holy Spirit of God has stepped in and made you different. Let's pray. When I'm done praying, you'll find instructions on the screen uh, to lead us into communion. And you'll also see that we have available for you in the back, if you wanna pray with someone, like if there's something haunting in you, man, you just wanna pray, man, I just ask you to go find someone with a lanyard, have them pray for you. But let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, man, we're, gosh, man, your word is good and it's hard. And so, Lord, I pray that right now around the soul of everyone in the room, Lord, that you would just build a protection around them, that they would see rightly and they would judge rightly. (coughs) Lord, I ask that you would give supernatural insight into moments that your spirit has won out to create something new in them. Lord, I ask that you would be present and you would help. Lord, evidence for new life in Christ is not that sin persists and I still battle it. Evidence for new life in Christ is a hunger and thirst for righteousness that's began and it's growing. <coughs> Lord, we have that because you entered in. 
we have that and we celebrate that at Christmas time because you appeared and you came in and when you left, you said you would come back and you made incredible promises that you will not lose one. It doesn't matter what we face, that the gates of hell can't stand against what you've done and that you've created a new being and what you've created, you promised to finish it. And all of these things are by your good works and your good grace that show your beauty as we are like lamps set on a lampstand to shine a room or a city on a hill that lights up a dark night. Lord, I pray that we would wrestle not out of fear, like we would wrestle out of your kindness, bringing us to repentance. And for believers in that room, it might just be this moment of like, man, I've started to build my identity on some of these sandy stones. And I'm afraid that part of my life is gonna come crashing down because it's not on the rock. Or it's just to give thankfulness that, man, there is a rock that I'm building my life upon. And Lord, it's because of you and it's not because of me. And so great be your name. Lord, wherever we are, I pray that you would meet us. And as we come forward in communion or we go to get prayer, Lord, I pray that there would be a steadiness that only your spirit can bring that would bring more and more assurance as we take the step of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Come when you're ready.